All right, welcome back to the Pious Podcast. My name is Meshach Canyon. I'm the host. Thank you for joining me as we are discussing the book of Daniel. This week we're in Daniel chapter 11, but before we get there, I wanted to say thank you. Um, some of you noticed that uh, we I didn't upload an episode last week, and um, there's a reason for that. Uh, but I'm, the thank you is just for noticing. Yeah, I mean, sometimes just being noticed feels really good. You know what I mean? Someone just um, someone just sees. I, I preached about that a little bit last week. Uh, the lady in Luke chapter 13 who was um, she had some sort of issue and she couldn't stand up straight, and it says that Jesus saw her. So being seen, I, I was seen by by those who uh, noticed that there wasn't a podcast. It let me realize that, you know, some people are, are listening. I knew people were listening because, you know, you get the, uh, the data analytics and stuff like that. But it felt good. So thank you for seeing me. Thank you for noticing. I apologize for not uploading an episode. Um, if you're familiar with what's happening at my church, uh, we are hiring a few people. And so in the meantime, uh, I've taken on some extra responsibilities. Uh, a lot of people on staff have taken on more responsibilities, but some of mine involve the, the teaching variety. I'm preparing a uh, an eight-week confirmation class that begins in March. We just started a, a book on Revelation, a study on Revelation uh, last Sunday, so all the additional lesson planning just kind of uh, pushed this back. And even though I, I really value this podcast and I want it to become um, more of a staple in my ministry, um, but, you know, my first responsibility is, is to the church, to my family, to the church, and then the podcast uh, comes after that. So, but here we are today, Daniel chapter 11. But before we do that, I wanted to um, uh, answer a question. And this is a question that I, I got out of a meeting that I had this week. Um, so someone asked me um, about spirituality within the marriage. More specifically, the question was something along the lines of, um, how can me and my spouse um, do devotions together, pray together? How can we uh, be on this discipleship journey together uh, by way of, of worship, Bible study, etc.? You guys understand what I'm saying. The person wanted to pray with their, their spouse. They wanted to study the Bible and do all those things together. And, and my answer, I don't know if it was a good answer, but it was the only one that I had. Sometimes I think we romanticize um, things like that. And it, it comes by way of uh, Christian bookstores and, and all the books that are released on what a Christian marriage is supposed to look like. And I think we need to give ourselves a break. Um, some people are able to pray with their spouses, to study the Bible together. Now, of course, families should pray together, but you guys understand what I'm describing. I'm describing one of those um, like prolonged sessions where a husband and wife are, you know, uh, kneeling down in the bed, um, in the bedroom, or at a at a coffee table together, and they're studying the Bible and they're talking about it and they're praying together, and and it's almost like the perfection of of two becoming one, even in terms of their devotional lives. Some people may have that, and uh, I thank God for those who are able to, um, but the fact of the matter is, not many people have that. What is most important is that husband and wife are devoted to God. And through their devotion to God, they're devoted to one another. 
Should they make an effort to come together in prayer and, and study from time to time? Yes. Um, but, you know, some, sometimes it doesn't work that way. Um, I, one of my, uh, you know, I mentioned Dallas Willard all the time. Um, it was a great relief when I, someone asked him a similar question, and he said that uh, him and his wife, Jane, uh, would pray together from time to time. But in, in terms of their um, intense spiritual study and focus and their intense prayer times, the majority of the time that happened separately because God was dealing with them in different ways. And, you know, Dallas was a, uh, a philosopher and he was a student of the word. And so um, when he was studying the Bible, he was he was looking at it from a perspective that his wife Jane wasn't. And she was looking at it from a perspective that he wasn't. So what was most important is, is that they were both doing their individual devotions. And through that devotion, they were able to serve uh, one another in the covenant of marriage. So, you know, sometimes I, I really think um, we, we make life harder on ourselves by, by adding a lot of oughts and shoulds. Uh, so the advice that I gave this person was that uh, rather than pushing a devotional life with, uh, with their spouse, my advice was to pray for them on a regular basis and praise God for them and to regularly ask God to become the kind of husband or become the kind of wife that could be um, suitable for their spouse and that could help their spouse become the kind of person that God created them to be. Uh, I was reminded of that quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorites, where it says, um, a brother or sister should talk to God about another brother more than they talk to another brother about God. I've mentioned that before, but Here's what it means. It means in our efforts to want to um, want somebody, well, somebody else to have a robust life with God or to experience salvation, we should make sure we're talking to God about them more than we're talking to them about God. Just in terms of how the, the scales balance out. You understand what I'm saying? Um, so give yourself a break. Don't, enough with the oughts and shoulds. If you see somebody that has a robust life and they're doing something, thank God for what they're doing. But their means may not be the same means that will get you to the place where God wants you to be. So don't push it. You know, me, me and Ashanti, um, I remember when we just had two kids and we would, every night we would um, read the Psalms and we tried to do a whole bunch of stuff together. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work, um, but we didn't, we didn't force it. We pray as a family uh, from time to time. On the way to school, I say the Lord's Prayer with my kids, but um, I no longer do the stuff like, hey, everybody, let's sit down together. And, and you know, because it's, it just felt forced um, in a way that wasn't helpful. And I don't, want, um, I don't want engagement with God to be forced in a way that's not helpful. Uh, so I try to let the Spirit lead me and guide me in terms of what kind of uh, collective spiritual um, example uh, I'm putting before my family and how I'm engaging with, with Ashanti and how she's engaging with me regarding the things of God. Uh, so, you know, some, some mornings I'll look over and she's reading her devotional while I'm, I'm going through my prayer book or something like that. And when I see that, thanks be to God. Uh, so I hope that's helpful for anybody that's uh, been thinking about that question with a husband or a wife or family, kids, coworkers or whatever. Talk to God about them more than you talk to them about God. Praise God for them. Like intentionally go through some 
some moments of uplifting things about them to God that you're really thankful for. And then watch them and see the effect that it has in their life. Pray that they'll have a great day. I have uh, in my office, I got a, a pictures, I call it my muse wall. So it's filled with uh, people who have inspired me in life. Uh, but in the center of it, it's Ashanti and my five kids. And um, when, when I'm doing my morning devotions, when I get to work, uh, I always close by turning to the picture and thanking God for each and every one of them and asking that God would fill their day with, with joy and peace and confidence and courage and things like that. And that to me is, is one of the ways of coming before God with my family, even though they're at school or at work and I'm all the way at my job. So uh, that's my answer to that question. Uh, it's a very good one. Again, if you have a question that you would like to ask, please send it to me, mcanyon, that's M-K-A-N-Y-I-O-N at gmail.com. All right. Now, Daniel chapter 11. This is going to be a shorter one, guys, because the easiest way for me to think about this passage is to think about it as a whole. You know, uh, I am not um, learned enough and I don't want to just read from a commentary uh, to try to understand what's going on uh, in this book. So we're going to take it in chunks. First of all, just wanted to say a word on on prophecy and history, because this is another this is another book where uh, it seems to be foretelling the future. Um, but there's some danger when it comes to books that foretell the future, because we don't know how it's or the perspective. We don't know what to do with it. And so uh, some people will, will take the, the language or the imagery and make something out of it that it wasn't intended to make. So just... I guess just some insight on on how I was taught to read uh, some of these things. The first thing is to remember that this is a history from the vantage point of God, right? And so when the future is uh, unveiled, we may experience it knowing full well what Daniel chapter 11 said. But because it was because Daniel chapter 11 was written from the vantage point of the kingdom of God, it may not look the same. I mean, for instance, think think about all the prophecies about uh, the coming Messiah and, you know, Jesus. He's so many places it talked about um, uh, this son of man, this prince of peace is going to come. And and what did people think? How did they interpret it? Well, you know, they, they read about governments being overthrown and things like that. And so they understood that a military leader was going to come. And then when Jesus came and he was you know, born to two peasants and living in the backwaters and things like that, everybody missed him, right? Because they heard the prophecy, but because the prophecy was from the standpoint of heaven, heaven's idea of overthrowing was a lot different uh, than humanity's ideas of overthrowing. So we have to keep that in mind whenever we come to prophecy. When we read things like this, this leader will... Uh, conquer and that leader will be overthrown and this thing and the plague will happen and this and that. We have to remember that this is as God is looking down on the earth with his holy eyes, this is what he sees happening. It may look different uh, uh, for those of us who are experiencing it, for those of us who are living it out. What God considers to be conquering may to us be a frustrating experience of, um, of loving somebody. 
Uh, I just saw The Chosen. By the way, if you if you don't watch The Chosen, man, you, you got to get on board. You got to get on board. It's really good. Um, me and a friend uh, from church went to see episodes four, five, and six uh, this past weekend. And they're, they're really developing uh, the Judas character. And you can see him being frustrated with Jesus because Jesus isn't uh, being the kind of Messiah that Judas wanted him to be. And so you can see, like, in Judas's mind, he has this understanding of who Jesus is supposed to be. And then there's one scene, and this isn't a spoiler, uh, I promise, but you guys remember in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, um, if someone compels you to go uh, to carry their, their bags one mile, go with them the second mile. Well, they had a scene where something like that happens, and you could see the look on Judas's face. He's like, man, why don't you put these Romans into their place? Why don't you, right? So what did he do? He, had, he, he read the prophecy. He understood the prophecy from a human perspective, and so then he was frustrated and disappoint, disappointed with the ways Jesus was uh, living out his uh, messianic rule. We cannot make the same mistake when we read any prophetic literature that is telling about what is going to happen in human history. We have to remember that this is written from the vantage point of from excuse me from the vantage point of God from the kingdom of heaven from the divine realities. They're looking and they're seeing it a certain way, and they're giving us language to uh, articulate and to understand what's going on. So in in this chapter. It's, it's kind of picking up from the earlier prophecies uh, in the book of Daniel where it talked about four kings rising up. And um, I believe earlier I alluded to the fact that many people um, attribute one of, the, one of the rulers to being uh, Alexander the Great and things like that. Um, so in an, but, but the vantage point switches here. So it's still from the vantage point of heaven. And sorry. Go, read the chapter by yourself. It's way too long for me to take the time to read it right now, but read it for yourself. But the vantage point is still from the kingdom of heaven, but the perspective shifts to Jerusalem, to the holy city, right? And we get the sense that it does because, it, because of how it describes the kings. It describes the kings from being the north and the south, right? So so that's like the first clue of how we should understand what's going to happen here. This is from the vantage point of the people of God who live uh, in the city of God, in the, in the holy city. And all these, these battles are taking place um, around them. And so what, what it describes, once again, is similar to what it described in, in Daniel chapter uh, 7. Uh, and some, somewhat in, in the lion's then story, it talks about the corruption of rulers and, and how rulers... Um, are hell-bent on having their own way and they're going to rule uh, according to their own wisdom, which is typically opposed to the wisdom of God. It typically involves violence. It typically involves um, all sorts of things that just are opposed to um, the ways of God and God is displeased with them. And the constant theme that we get throughout the book of Daniel, which started all the way back in Daniel chapter 1. Remember in Daniel chapter 1 where it says, um, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar went and besieged Jerusalem, right? But the theme that we get there is even though he was wreaking havoc, God was in control. Even though it looked like evil was having its way, in a very small way, we see that the, 
that the one leading and guiding and truly controlling everything is none other than than Almighty God. And that's the sense that we get in the in this prophecy as well. Everything looks like it's bad. Everything looks like it's broken. But when we consider it from the vantage point of the one who is seeing and watching and telling the story, we get the sense that God is truly uh, in control. And since God is in control, all shall be well. That reminds me, I think it was uh, St. Teresa of Avila who says, uh, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be made well. And that's what that's the sense that we get from um, from Daniel chapter 11 too, with this prophecy of kings from the north and kings from the south uh, waging war against one another. Now, I want to fast forward to Jan to Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, because here's where um, actually I'll go a little bit earlier than 36. But here's where um, uh, an important figure begins to move to the forefront. So. Uh, here, let me read, because once again, all prophecy is not meant to just foretell the future, but it's meant to help the people of God um, live in these realities. So when we read that there's going to be all these battles, the question that all of God's children need to be asking themselves is, how then shall I live knowing that the rulers of the world are corrupt? How should I be living? And uh, so that's that's why God gives these um, instructions is so we can answer those questions. So let me read. Uh, I'll start with verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So this is something that uh, this is language that many of you will remember Jesus himself using when he describes uh, the end times. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Now listen to this verse in verse 32. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Other translations say uh, the people who know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble... They shall receive a little help and many shall join themselves to them with flattery and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So it's painting this picture of, you know, I guess life in the midst of all this turmoil and calamity and the people of God are really standing up and standing firm. Why? Because we have an apocalyptic way of living. We have an apocalyptic understanding of what's taking place. And that's really important. You know, someone, as this is an election year for us, so we got Donald Trump, we got uh, Joe Biden. And it's so funny, depending on your political alignment and the results of the election, you will typically hear Christians from the losing side of the election say that the, the president that was elected was the Antichrist. So, you know, since I've been paying attention, I know George H.W. Bush was the Antichrist, and then um, uh, Bill Clinton was the Antichrist, and then you got George W. Bush was the Antichrist, Donald Trump was the Antichrist, uh, Barack Obama was the Antichrist, and now, and it's, you, you see, that that's what we do. So we... Uh, that's we interpret history and say, no, the, the loser is the Antichrist. But that's that's not what we're supposed to be doing. 
we're supposed to be seeing that all human governments, all human authorities uh, are bent towards destruction. They're bent towards a kind of leadership that does not align with the ways of God. And therefore, since we see things apocalyptically, we see that all governments are beastly, then we are meant to call one another not to be loyal to them and not to think that just because our guy lost, the other guy must be the Antichrist, but to take a stance and say, here's what's really going on. Here's how God calls us to be in these times that we live in. I mean, Daniel, uh, not, not the book, but the person, he's a perfect example of how we are meant to live within a climate of Babylon where the leaders are corrupt. I mean, just look at Daniel's relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. Faithful, loyal to his God, faithful to his God, but served Nebuchadnezzar in such a way that he, he, became, the, he became the third highest ruler in the lands, right? Same thing when Darius was president. Same thing, president, king. Same thing with uh, Belshazzar. Daniel, he, he, he remained who he was, faithful to God in these tumultuous times with different kings. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's what it really looks like to live apocalyptically. It is to become aware of the fact that this regime that I'm living under is, um, you know, is tumultuous. It's a beast. Therefore, I should not be loyal to the beast, even if the things that the beast is doing are working out in my favor. But my loyalty must be to God. And as the passage that I just read says, I must make it my effort to help people see what is truly happening. Now, some, some of us are more inclined to do that by what we say. Some of us are inclined to do that by how we live. But that's, the, that's, really, the, um, that's really the responsibility of the people of God is to live in such a way that bears witness to the king who is coming, whose uh, reign will go from eternity into eternity um, and not, not be loyal to the reign, the reign of those who are here uh, right now. And that's, that's what Daniel's encouraging us to do. And it's becoming more, um, um, more, more of a focus as we get into these apocalyptic uh, writings. And he's receiving these prophetic uh, visions of, <clears throat> man, I got a candle burning in my office and it's making me choke up. But anyways, it's a call to faithfulness. I'll just say that. Now, when we get to verse 36 in Daniel chapter 11, here is where people start having a field day because it begins to describe a, a ruler who's going to be worse than all the other rulers, right? This is going to be a king that does as he wills. He's going to, he's going to be the perfection of wickedness and, um, and all the other kings are going to attack this king, but this king is going to be victorious over all these other wicked kings. Um, now, like I said, many people turn this into the Antichrist and, and many people, other people will point to um, Greek or, or Roman rulers, uh, again, like, um, like Alexander, or I think his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, if some of you guys know about the Maccabean revolt, um, some, that's when the abomination that caused desolation took place. I think uh, he, he entered the uh, temple and he sacrificed a pig, which is unclean uh, for Jewish people. And then he spread the blood around the altar. And so some people say that this king is referring to that person. I think the, the best way uh, to 
explain this or to understand it is to not necessarily name one person as the Antichrist. Because uh, you remember in, in John's letters, um, he says that many Antichrists will come into the world. So what do we do with that? Well, in the, in the same way that we can look in the Old Testament and we see many um, Christ-like figures, you know, in a way, uh, Moses and Joshua, Elijah, Abraham, all of these were like Christ-like figures. They, they, they had, um, if I can use this language, characteristics that were perfected in Jesus Christ. And so their lives in some way pointed to the coming of Christ, right? All the prophets, David, his life was, although it was imperfect, there were aspects of his life that pointed to the reality of Jesus Christ. That way, when Jesus came, we could see like, oh, Jesus is the true David. Jesus is the true Abraham. He's the true Moses. He's the true Elijah, right? Well, the same thing can be said on the flip side. All these bad leaders, um, whether they intend to do it or not, all these leaders who think that might is right, you know, I have the biggest uh, army, so what I say goes, all of them are imperfect uh, representations of the Antichrist who is to come. So I don't think it's necessary for us to spend time arguing about who the Antichrist figure is, but we should know that since the Bible says all human governments and authorities are beasts, then all human leaders have those kind of, um, of uh, that's Antichrist um, characteristics sown within them. And I'm not talking about all, you know, what I mean is by those governments, those authorities uh, that use evil as a way of bringing forth good. You will inevitably find uh, antichrist um, proclivities within them. And and I guess then we can say that there will be a time when a person comes who will be the perfection of all of those antichrist characteristics. And that person will be revealed but to waste time wondering who this person is and arguing about who that person is, is to miss the point. The point is to be aware that from the standpoint of heaven, we see all these beasts that are governments, that are authorities, and that one day there's going to be someone who perfects that. But the most important thing about this, uh, this Antichrist figure and of evil in general is how it comes to an end. So... It paints a picture here of all these battles taking place. And the same thing happens in Revelation, by the way. But listen to how all of this stuff comes to an end. Verse 45. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Then it says, all, after everything that happened, listen to what it says. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Talk about anticlimactic, right? Why does it do that? How come it goes to great lengths to talk about the, uh, uh, the establishment of evil. But when we come to the overthrow of evil, it's just, uh, yet yeah, he shall come to his end, right? What's it doing? This is the Bible's way of painting a picture of how, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? How insubstantial evil is in, in, the, final, in the final accounting, right? It's like that word, that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that Martin Luther wrote. At the end, he says, um, of Satan, one little word shall fail him. One little word. It's not going to be a great, like, 
great battle. It's not going to be like the Avengers coming out of portals and all that stuff to save the day. And we're all tired. But one day God's just going to be like, all right, that's enough. And that's the end. Evil is wrapped up. Evil's done. Right. It's why the, the Jesus figure that, that shows up in Revelation, he has a sword that comes out of his mouth. Why? Because he's just going to speak a word. And when he speaks that word, he's going to do away with evil and unrighteousness and establish good and righteousness forever and ever. And once again, as the faithful, as people of God, if we're reading this, when we understand that evil will be wrapped up with a snap of a finger, it paints a picture and it informs us of the kinds of people we ought to be uh, in a world that is filled with evil, right? We must be the kind of people that invest our lives in what is good and what will remain and do our best to call people out of these, um, uh, these realities of evil that, are, that, that look like, you know, you can really establish yourself. But we must come to see like, man, one day your whole foundation of evil is going to be brought to nothing. And then what are you going to have to stand on? Let me show you what you can stand on that will last for an eternity. You know, it's, it's like in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus tells the story of the wise uh, or the two builders. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The rain came, you know, the wind blew and his house remained standing because it was founded on the rock. The foolish builder, he built his house upon the sand. The sand represents evil. It's a scattering of ideas and thoughts that are opposed to God. When the rain came and the wind blew, his house collapsed. Ashanti was showing me um, videos of these homes. I think they're on the West Coast, but they're, they're like right on the edge of a cliff. And it's like they're mil worth millions of dollars, right? But nobody knows when they're going to fall over. But you, you know what's going to happen? It's going to start first with like just a little grain. And then that grain will give way to a pebble and that pebble will give way to a rock and that rock will give way to a boulder. And the next thing you know, this house that was worth millions of dollars is, you know, it's just toppled off this cliff into the ocean. And what's it going to be worth then? Absolutely nothing. That's how evil is going to be wrapped up. Just one little, one little thing. One day we'll be here. The next day we'll look and say, oh, man, what happened to that guy, you know? And so imagine if your life has been established on things that are evil. So that's what, in a nutshell, the prophetic literature in Daniel, it's meant to help us understand um, that as people of God, we should stand on God and we should live lives that call people towards wisdom, uh, the wisdom of, of righteousness rather than the uh, stupidity of living according to what is evil. Well, listen, that's the best I could do today. Um, I'm kind of tempted to go to Daniel chapter 12 right now, but I'm going to I'm going to hold off on that because um, I'm also still thinking about what to do after this. I'll tell you guys, uh, since I'm teaching this class on Revelation, I'm thinking about just turning that into a podcast. That would be easiest for me. Um, but I'd like to hear from some of you as well. What what would be helpful to you? What are you wrestling with? It doesn't have to be a Bible study. Um, I'm still kind of filling out and praying a lot about what the pious podcast is supposed to be. So if you have any thoughts or ideas, I would really appreciate hearing them from you. All right. Well, I think that's all for today. Let me say a prayer for you. Then I'll let you go. 
Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for uh, these prophecies. God, they are, they are tough to, to read through. They're even harder to understand. But I think we get the big, the big picture, which is to, to become aware of how things are from your vantage point, to see the bestial nature of life on earth, and having that perspective to place our full confidence in you and to do our best to live faithfully so as to call others uh, into wisdom, into holiness, into righteousness, and to rescue them from the deception of wickedness. Forgive us, Lord, when we have established our own lives uh, on unrighteous means, and help us, God, to stand firmly on the firm foundation, which is Jesus Christ, trusting that one day you're going to wrap up human history and it's going to be beautiful to behold. And we want to be in that company of faithful ones who stands behind you as you're doing so. So call us to wisdom today in whatever ways are best suited for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, sisters and brothers. Well, listen, one more week. Daniel chapter 12 is only 13 verses. So I'll read that and then I'll talk to you next uh, Monday. All right, peace.